Hey, thanks for listening. Um, I'm afraid last Sunday's sermon, for some reason, didn't record properly. Uh, So here's a summary of what we were talking about. It's not quite how I preached it, but this will give you an idea of what Ruth chapter 4 is about. Let me start by reading through the passage. Um, We're going to look at Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Let me read it, and then we'll dive into it. So Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile... Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Well, it seems to me as we get to the end of this book of Ruth in Ruth chapter 4, that it's a slightly strange ending. After all the romance and the excitement of Ruth chapters 1, 2 and 3, and the passion and the emotion that's been building, suddenly we're entered into this business deal, this legal transaction, a, a negotiation and a sandal, and it all seems a little bit strange. It all seems a bit unromantic. I mean, come on, Boaz, you love her and she loves you, Why don't you just get on with it? Yes, I know that technically speaking there's another guy who might have some rights. But don't risk it. Don't mess it up. Just go with it. I mean, the passion has been building right throughout this book. When we go back to the start of the book, we find Ruth and Naomi in this terrible, penniless situation where they are desperately poor. They've come back from Moab, they've arrived back in Bethlehem, and they have nothing. They're they're so poor that Ruth has to go and beg. She has to go and pick up scraps of food, hoping that someone will notice her. 
And you may well remember, if you've been following the series, that someone did notice her. Because just as it so happened, she ended up in the field of a man called Boaz. And even though she was a foreigner, even though she had no rights, Boaz noticed her. Boaz showed kindness to her. Boaz showed favour to her. And there was the hint, the beginning of some sort of hope for Ruth and Naomi, some sort of romance, some sort of future for them. In Ruth chapter 3, it stepped up a notch further with that daring nighttime encounter where Ruth crept onto the threshing floor where she should not have been. And she uncovered Boaz's feet and basically she asked him to marry her. She asked him to spread out his wings over her. She said, I want to find refuge in you. I want you to take care of me. And Boaz said, I will do everything you've asked. He's clearly king. And you sense this great building of emotion. This is it. Building towards a great wedding. You can almost hear the music in the background, the violins sweeping, the Elton John singing, can you feel the love tonight? There's love in the air, you can feel it. Boaz can feel it, Ruth can feel it. Let's go with this. But suddenly there's another man. Boaz says there's another guy. And we go from that emotion and passion to a legal transaction. Now in our culture, where love is a romantic, emotional, feelings-driven thing, to suddenly go to a business deal feels a bit out of place. Imagine a young couple who've just got engaged. And you say to the guy, how did you propose? What did you do? And he said, well, I got, I got ten blokes together and we had a business negotiation. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound very romantic. And yet that's what's going on in Ruth chapter 4. Our culture wants there to be this emotional sweeping Ruth off her feet. But Ruth chapter 4, its main focus is on a legal transaction that occurs. And so here is my big point in Ruth chapter 4. This is what I want us to get hold of. It teaches us that at the heart of covenant love, there is always a legal transaction. That's what I want us to get clear. At the heart of covenant love, there is always a legal transaction. Covenant love, that is Bible love, true love, the best form of love, is founded upon a legal transaction. Our culture wants to drive a wedge. Our culture wants to say, no, 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 love is about feelings and emotion and passion. And the idea of a business deal is miles away from love. But I want to show you that to drive a wedge between those two things devalues love. Non-covenant love, love that is purely emotion and feelings, is rubbish compared to the true covenant love that we see on display here. And if we can get hold of this idea of covenant love, this love that Boaz displays in this business deal, it's going to help us to understand what we mean when we say God loves me. 
When I say God loves me, that is not some slushy, romantic, abstract thing. It's not some feeling-based thing. When I say God loves me, at the very heart of that, that love is founded upon and based upon a legal transaction that has occurred. And that is the foundation of God's love for me. Let me just show you where we're going um, so that you can understand it as we go through Ruth chapter 4. Let me read you one verse um, from Revelation chapter 5 where the, the people in heaven are singing about Jesus and they say this. You are worthy because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now hear that language. Why is Jesus worthy of praise? Because with his blood he has purchased people. That's a deal, right? That is a legal transaction has occurred. Jesus has paid something in order to buy people for God. He has paid with his blood. At the cross when Jesus died, a legal transaction occurred. And that is the foundation of God's covenant love for his people. So as we look at Ruth 4, I want to fill out that idea that God loves me. When I say God loves me, it means I can say God purchased me. He paid for me. And we need to be careful that we don't settle for anything less than this covenant love. Okay, we're going to go back to Ruth chapter 4. We're going to work through this transaction uh, that Boaz goes through, this legal deal. And as we see it, we're going to find out about this, the true nature of covenant love. And I want us to allow God to fill out our understanding of what it means to say God loves me. I want to see the inner workings of true covenant love. I've got five things about this legal transaction. And here's the first thing. I want you to see that it is a lawful transaction. Covenant love is always built upon a lawful transaction. Boaz is absolutely clear that his love for Ruth is going to be based upon what God says in his law. So let's look, look at what's happening. Verse, verse 1, Ruth chapter 4 verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to town gate. Now the town gate, that's the place where business deals are done. And he sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. So here comes the other guy. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. I love this. Boaz has real power, doesn't he? He orders people around. He does it again in verse 2. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Boaz is, is a man of authority, a man of power, and he's gathering a court. He's gathering a legal setting in which to do his business and Boaz sets out the issue for this other man he says in verse 3 Naomi who's come back from Moab is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people if you will redeem it do so but if you will not tell me so I will know for no one has the right to do it except you and I am next in line now it's slightly complicated to work out exactly what's happening here. What does it mean that Naomi has a piece of land that she's selling? Because if you remember back in chapter 2, she's penniless and she's got nothing. What does it mean that she's got land to sell? 
Let me try and explain what I think is happening. Back in Leviticus 25, let me just read you um, what it says in Leviticus 25, verse 25. It says this. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. Now I think the, the best way to understand what's happening here is that Elimelech and Naomi had land. All of God's people had a piece of land in Israel. It was their inheritance. But in the famine back in chapter 1, before they left to go to Moab, it seems likely that they had sold that land in order to get money for food. They had become poor, in the language of Leviticus 25, and sold some of their property. Now in that situation, so Naomi has a piece of land that belonged to Elimelech, but she can't access it because it belonged, she sold it to someone else. Now in that situation, the law says it can be redeemed by the nearest relative. And so Boaz is saying there is this land and this unnamed man has the right to redeem it. He's the nearest relative to Ruth. And so he can redeem it. God's law sim seems to be saying that the land needs to be redeemed by the closest person. And Boaz is not the closest relative. It would not be lawful for him to enter into marriage with Ruth because someone else is first in line. Now covenant love is bothered about what is lawful and right. Now we're sitting here saying, oh come on Boaz, you love her, she loves you, just get married, why are you messing around with all this law stuff? That's not very loving. But covenant love is committed to doing what is right and lawful. I, I, I want us to understand this, love does not make wrong things right. It cannot work like that. And yet that's often how people talk about love, as if love somehow gives an excuse for me to do things that are wrong. Look, I'm married, okay? I made a commitment to my wife 17 years ago. I promised that I would love her until we die. Now imagine I fall in love with another woman. It would not be right for me to leave my wife for another woman. And yet the way that people argue it, and you hear people argue it, is, yes, but we've fallen in love. As if love has the power to make wrong things right. That is non-covenant love. Covenant love is always lawful. It never breaks God's law. Do you know, I think people do this even with God. They have this idea that God's love trumps all his other attributes that God's love trumps his righteousness is more important so they say things like well you know ultimately at the end of the day look God is love that's ultimately what God is and yes he's holy and he's righteous and he's just and he punishes sin but look at the end of the day he's love 
That is a complete misunderstanding of who God is. God doesn't have a hierarchy of attributes as if love is the most important thing about God. Now, I, I, this, this is a bit complicated, but, but try and stick with this because this is really important for us to understand God rightly. God's attributes are all true all the time. This is what it means um, when theologians talk about the simplicity of God. God is simple. Now that means that all of his attributes are always true all the time. Okay, I am not simple. I mean, there are ways that I am simple. But I'm not simple when it comes to passions and emotions and attributes. There is a contradiction within me. My love might contradict and clash into my patience or my anger. There's a, there's a wrestle within me. That doesn't exist within God. His attributes do not clash into one another. He's not sometimes loving and sometimes just. He is all of his attributes all of the time. He is always loving, always just, always holy, always right. All the time. So it's not true that God is just ultimately love. He is ultimately love, ultimately holy, ultimately pure. This is, I, I, I know this might seem a million miles away from Ruth 4, but this is really important for us to understand. Covenant love is always right and lawful and holy. So when God says to us, I love you, that doesn't mean I love you and therefore I'll ignore all the wrong things you've done. I'll just forget about that. You know, my love will trump my righteousness and my justice. No, that can't be right. At the heart of God's covenant love is a way, a, a transaction, a legal transaction by which God is able to both express his love and his righteousness. My sin must be punished. To not punish sin would be wrong for a just God. But to punish sin would not express God's forgiving love. And so God has found a way and it is in the blood of Jesus, at the cross of Jesus, where God's covenant love, his just, holy, righteous, lawful love is expressed. My sin is transferred to Jesus. And at the cross, Jesus is punished for my sin. The law is satisfied. And yet God's great love is shown because he has punished Jesus in my place. And he can lawfully say, I love you. But this really matters because when God says to you, I love you. If you are trusting Jesus, then he is right to love you. He's not loving you kind of, oh, they're so bad, and but I love them anyway. No, he's legally, lawfully right to love you because in Jesus he has made you righteous. 
covenant love is always lawful. It's based on a legal transaction. He is right to love you. Now this is really important then for us to understand in how we live our lives. If I, if there's something or someone that I love that God says it is not lawful for me to love, then no matter how much I might love them, it's not right. It's wrong. And we need to be committed to covenant love, lawful love, where we love what is right. That's the first big thing uh, about um, covenant love and this legal transaction. It is a, always a lawful transaction. Here's the second thing. It is a long-sighted transaction. It looks to the future, not just to the present. So Bowers has set out this, um, this law. He set out this option for the man to redeem the land. And in the end of verse 4, the man says this, I will redeem it. I mean, that is a devastating verse in the story. It's a disaster. Oh, Boaz, you shouldn't have done that. You know, I knew this was going to happen. Boaz, if only you'd just gone with your feelings. If only you'd just gone with your emotion in chapter 3. Why did you have to bring up all this law stuff? Now you've messed it up. Now this man wants the land. But Boaz isn't done. There is a catch, isn't there? Look at verse 5. Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. You see, what's going on here is much more than just a, a, a legal exchange of land. You know, in our, in our society, I've got a bit of land. You want to buy it? That's fine. You can buy it. Now it's yours. But in Israel, the land was massively important because the land was all about having a stake in God's promise God had promised this land to his people God had given this land to his people and every tribe and every clan and every family had their bit of land and their bit of land was their connection to God's promise to his covenant okay let's let's um, trace this bit of land then um, let, let, let me take to Numbers chapter 27. It is a bit complicated, this stuff, but I'll, I just want to show you what happens because it's all set out in God's law. Uh, Numbers 27. Let me read you this. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. Right, let's play who owns the land. Okay, so Elimelech and Naomi have a bit of land. Elimelech dies. Does he have a son? Yes, Marlon. So the tr land is transferred to Marlon. But now Marlon dies. So, uh, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. Does he have a daughter? No. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. Does he have a brother? Yes, he has a brother, Kilion. But Kilion is dead as well. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of law for the Israelites. In other words, you have, because the land 
represents your stake in the promise, you have to find the closest person you can to the family so that the name of that family is not cut off from the promise. Now what Boaz is bothered about in Ruth chapter 4 is maintaining that that family's relationship to the covenant. The name of the dead man must be connected to the property. Boaz is looking before the immediate, beyond the immediate to the future. He's looking beyond the kind of, oh, we love each other so much, this is so nice, let's just get married, let's not worry about the future. No, Boaz is looking way into the future. He wants to protect the inheritance for the future. And true covenant love cares about the future. It cares about the inheritance. It cares about the security for the future. It cares about being connected to the promises of God. Non-covenant love is all about now. That's why in Hollywood, you watch a Hollywood film with a wedding in it, and the vow is, I do. Do you take this person? I do. But that's not the proper way. That's a rubbish wedding vow. The proper wedding vow is not, I do. But will you take this woman? I will. Because it's looking to the future, not just to the present. Covenant love doesn't say, I do. It says, I will. It is a long-sighted promise. Now that is what Jesus secured by his blood at the cross. Jesus, in this legal transaction at the cross, when he purchased people for God, he did not just secure my present, he secured my eternal future. He bought a stake in the eternal promised land, the new creation. He has given me an inheritance that cannot spoil. He's given me something for eternity, because that's what covenant love is bothered about. Non-covenant love will end up saying things like, oh, I don't love you anymore. I don't feel it anymore. Covenant love looks way, way, way into the future. Boaz is concerned about the future security of Ruth and the family line of Elimelech. Here's the third thing. This transaction is a sacrificial transaction. As soon as this, look at verse 6, as soon as this other man... Here's about Ruth. Look at his reaction. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. This man is all about protecting his own name. He's about protecting his own status. And taking on Ruth the Moabite puts that in jeopardy. Because he now will be fathering sons for another man. He will be maintaining the name of another man rather than his own name. And he's obsessed with his own name. He wants to build his own name. He wants to build his own reputation. He wants to protect his own stuff. He wants to be all about himself. And what's his name? What is his name? We have no idea. We're not even told because his name, no one cares. No one cares about a loser like this who is only concerned for his own name. If that's all you're concerned about, if all you're concerned about in life is your name and your reputation and your security, then you have a name that will not last. You'll, be, you'll have a name which is forgotten. 
this man's name is gone. Because sacrificial covenant love, this transaction is a sacrifice. It means sacrificing your own name. That's what Boaz does. He abandons his own name. He abandons what's most convenient for him. He abandons the choices that would make life smooth. He abandons an obsession with building a good reputation. And instead he acts in covenant love towards Ruth. It is sacrificial love. Non-covenant love is always self-preserving. You know, I'll, 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 I'll get married if I think it's going to make my life better. If it's going to make me happy. If it's going to make my life easier. That's non-covenant love. Covenant love always endangers the person who shows it. So if you're engaged, I want you to know you are endangering your future by getting married. You know that, right? If the only reason you're getting married is because you think it will make your life easier, or you think it will make your life better, or you think it will enhance your life, then don't get married. Because the only because covenant love is dangerous. It's sacrificial. It costs. It endangers your own name and your own reputation. Now there's lots that's good about marriage. Don't hear me being totally negative. But covenant love is not in it for your own name. And you see that most clearly again in Jesus. And the great transaction that he entered into at the cross. It was supremely costly to him. A transaction that would cost him his blood. He paid with his blood. And interestingly, Boaz is the name that lasts. And not the other man. And Jesus is the name that now lasts. Because Jesus has been given a name that's above every name. Because he was willing to go to a cross and die. Covenant love will always be sacrificial. But covenant love is also public. It's the fourth thing. It's a public transaction. It's not a back street, not done in secret, not a dodgy deal. He calls witnesses... And then there's all this random stuff about the sandal. I love that. This is, it's not that complicated. This was just the way they did business. I don't know who first thought of it. Slightly white, random idea. Tell you what, let's seal this with a sandal. Don't know how that happened. But that's the way it was done. And Boaz wants to publicly, visibly, physically declare that that is what is happening. And so this bloke takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz and says, there you go, I've done the deal. And everybody could see it. It's a sign. As, as, as people in the future think, oh, what happened on that day? What was that deal? They will remember. No, Mr. No Name took off his sandal and gave it to Boaz. That was the deal. There's a physical, visible sign. Boaz makes it clear to everyone. He wants to call the witnesses and say, look, look at what I'm doing. Covenant love is always public. It is not a shame. Boaz doesn't secretly marry Ruth in a corner somewhere where no one knows. He wants to publicly demonstrate his love for Ruth. And so it is in the legal transaction that Jesus performed at the cross. He unashamedly and publicly declares his love for you. 
as you trust him. He's not ashamed to love you. He doesn't whisper it. He shouts it out loud. And he so much wants his people to know that he loves them. That on the night before he went to a cross, he gave a sign, a visible sign. He took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant. This is the sign of the new deal, the transaction that I'm doing. This is the cup of the new covenant, which in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus publicly loves his people. He is not ashamed of you. And here's the last thing. And that is that it is a fame-worthy transaction. Look what the witnesses say. Then the elders, verse 11, and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who built, together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. When you see an act of true covenant love, it is a fame-worthy thing. The witnesses can see that what they've just seen before their very eyes is something that is worthy of great, great honour. This is no shallow, superficial, pathetic little love. This is a love that is worthy of the greatest fame. Boaz deserves to be famous because of this covenant love that he's shown. May you be famous. So let me say, when you find a man who will love you lawfully and who will love you long-sightedly and who will love you sacrificially and who will love you publicly, that man is worthy of great fame. That man is worthy of great honour. And that is why there is no greater thing in all the world than to give fame and honour and worship and praise to Jesus. Jesus who demonstrates this covenant love. And I want to encourage you to trust him. I want to encourage you, I want you to know that when, when we say God loves me, it is a huge statement we're making. And it is a statement that is founded upon the legal transaction that Jesus achieved when he shed his blood at the cross. When he paid to redeem us for God. And if you're listening to this and if you're not trusting him, then I would encourage you right now to put all of your hope in this man. To make this man the one who you give fame and honour and worship to Trust him. You will not find a love like this anywhere. And just as we finish this, this study of Ruth chapter 4, I think it's also just worth applying it then to how we think about our relationships. You know, some of us uh, are single, some of us are married, some of us are engaged, some of us are in dating relationships. And I want to challenge you and encourage you to be about this sort of covenant love. If you're single, find your contentment, your joy, your satisfaction in Jesus who loves you like this. 
And if you're thinking about finding a partner, if you're looking for finding someone to marry, don't settle for anyone less. Don't settle for anything less than someone who is pursuing this sort of covenant love. Be wary of being swept off your feet by an emotional, passion-filled love that has no long-sighted view, that has no sacrifice caught up in it, that has no legal transaction at the basis of it. You'll never find a man who loves you like Jesus. But you do need to find a man who at least wants to love you like Jesus. Don't settle for anything less. And if you're married, then are we showing this sacrificial, long-term love to one another? There is nothing greater than this covenant love. All other love is pathetic compared to this. So as we finish, why don't you just take a, a moment or two as, we, as you've listened to this, to hear again those words. When God says to you, I love you, underneath that is this phenomenal legal transaction that Jesus has done. And you can be sure that when he says he loves you, he really loves you.